Our Old Testament lesson is found in the book of Jonah. We're reading chapters 2 and 3 today. The challenge when handling Jonah is working through it successively without being repetitive and covering the whole story each week. Four short chapters telling a wonderful account of a disobedient prophet of God. So listen carefully to God's Word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we do gather around Your Word this morning, we come to be addressed by You. Just as You spoke to Jonah, You speak to us today. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are here listening. Amen. 
It is important that I take the opportunity to give you the infomercial one more time for the upcoming missions conference. For those of you who were in the sanctuary when we made the announcements, it is creeping up on us, and it'll be here very quickly. It's at the close of January, and it will be a very exciting and full weekend. My former boss at Second Presbyterian Church, the senior minister there, Sandy Wilson, will be joining us and doing our Bible teaching on Friday night, Saturday morning, and Sunday morning. We'll have visiting missionaries here who will give us reports from the field, and we'll have many of our missionaries here with booths uh, set up in elaborate displays for you to be able to talk with them and uh, uh, to hear personal reports from uh, their work that God has called them to do. It will be a tremendous weekend, and we want to get this on your radar screen because we know coming off of Christmas, it's very difficult uh, to have things uh, prominent for all of you. But please mark that weekend. It is the weekend between the NFL playoffs and the Super Bowl, okay? Uh, we have paid attention to such things, and, uh, and it is a great dead weekend. Um, and so uh, please plan to be in town, and please join us Friday night, uh, Saturday morning here at Christ Church Mandarin. Sunday morning, please don't come here or it'll be a, um, uh, a lonely experience, uh, would be the way to describe it, uh, because we will be at the Lazaro Theater on UNF's campus. There's parking close. It's easy to get in. We just went and visited this week. It's a fantastic venue. It's going to be big enough for all three of our, uh, of our churches to join together. So please mark that. One of the things that we're doing to prepare for the missions conference is that we are working through the book of Jonah, reading this Old Testament prophet who rebelled against God to prepare our hearts for God's call to us to go to the nations because the call to Jonah was just the same. You're undoubtedly familiar with Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick. There's a new movie that has come out, and that's not why we're doing this preaching series but in the book, Melville writes these words. Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the Scriptures. Yet what a pregnant lesson to us in this prophet Jonah. Melville writes an entire book almost based on this figure Jonah. He saw that though just four small strands, four short chapters, that there was a pregnant lesson for the church to learn. There was something to listen to. And so that's our question for the morning. What is the pregnant lesson that we need to learn from the book of Jonah? And I would suggest that it begins with this. It's a large lesson, but it begins with this. And that is simply that sin is deceptive. Jonah is a wonderfully told story. It's presented to us with all kinds of artistic skill and literary devices in the ancient languages. It's complex, and it would have had its original audience laughing because there are several moments of deep, intense, rich irony uh, that the story is presented to us in. But the sin that is apparent in the story is that of Nineveh. Everyone in the ancient world was familiar with it because Nineveh was known for its violence and for its injustice. It was a brutal empire that at one point was a, very much a superpower in the region. 
And they were known just for how savage they were. And so when God calls out to Jonah, and he tells him that the evil of Nineveh has risen up to him, that was a surprise to no one. Everyone understood just how wicked the Ninevites were. They were a savage people who had no concern or care or compassion. Their evil was there in front of God. Jonah knew of it because Israel itself had suffered. They knew what it was to be victims of such violence and injustice. The surprising thing is is that this is not the main focus of the book of Jonah. That God doesn't give us this story of the rebellious prophet to take us into the wickedness of the Ninevites. He details that in Nahum chapter 3, actually. But the main focus turns onto Israel itself, onto the character of Jonah, who is somewhat of a representative of the church. Because Jonah, when he has been called by God to go to Nineveh, suddenly he flees. We saw this last week in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Tarshish is a famous city in the ancient world. It was to the west of the Mediterranean. It begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and Jonah was going exactly the opposite direction he was supposed to go. He was to go to Nineveh, and he was going this way. He wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. He wanted nothing to do with this command. Tarshish was known as a city of advancement and technology. It was a place where you could get ahead. He was going to the other end of the world. Much more sophisticated place. And it's important to note that in the book of Jonah, God speaks and appoints things and stuff happens. So we find that God speaks and a great wind arises on the ocean. We find that God appoints a great fish. It's not a whale, surprisingly. (laughs) Just a great fish. And that comes and consumes Jonah. And then in chapter 4, God is going to speak a plant into existence that's going to grow up over Jonah. And when God speaks, things happen. Things happen in order. But do you know the one resistant force to God's speech in the book? It's His own prophet. His name is Jonah, son of Amittai. And the word Amittai just simply means of my faithfulness. Son of my faithfulness. Jonah, a son of the covenant, born into the house of Israel, who'd received all the great promises of God's mercy and grace and His purposes for Israel. Because remember those purposes in Genesis 12. Is that God set apart Abraham. That he and his family would be blessed and be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And so Jonah was the heir of those promises. He was commissioned to be a light to the nations. And he wanted nothing to do with it. He runs from this call. So what we find is the way that the story is told is that Jonah goes down. Notice what he does in in 1 verse 3. He went down to Joppa and found a ship. And then you'll find in verse 5 that he goes down into the hull of the ship. And then in chapter 2, 
Jonah goes down once again. He goes down into the heart of the sea, we're told, where the bars of death encompass him. Jonah goes down, down, down. And this is not simply giving you his GPS coordinates, okay? It's a moral commentary on Jonah's character that he is descending down into chaos as he runs from God. That yes, he may be going to a sophisticated city, but he's actually bringing about his own death. That Jonah's life is spinning out of control. And this is the main focus of the book of Jonah. It's to call Israel and to call us, the church, to examine our hearts. Where do we stand with God? That yes, it can be quite easy for us to focus on the sins of the Ninevites that are great and apparent and certainly rise before God. But then there's a more subtle nature to sin that can live inside of us. And that Jonah was clearly entitled. A son of God's faithfulness. One who enjoyed the mercy of God. Who clearly, from his psalm that he sings from the belly of the great fish, he was orthodox. This psalm is lifted from a compilation of several of the book of Psalms. He knew the right things to say. He knew when to say words and when to confess faithfulness to God. He knew how to cry out in the middle of his distress. And yet he was filled with a world of sin. A world of evil lived inside of him. Melville writes this in Moby Dick. Heaven have mercy on us all. Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. That he had learned it well. That this is the message of the book of Jonah. The brokenness of God's people themselves and the brokenness of the world around. All of us are cracked about the head and sadly need mending. And so Jonah wanted grace for himself. He wanted no grace for his enemies. And all of us can find ourselves in that place with different kinds of people or different specific people. But what has to happen to us when we find ourselves in that place, begrudging others, angry and mad, wanting the grace of God for ourselves, but thinking others are perhaps outside the pale? What has to happen? And there's three things that Jonah's prayer leads us into. And the first thing is that you have to hit bottom. And this is where Jonah goes. He bottoms out. His prayer is poetic and it's filled with imagery. And the imagery of water from Psalm 69 is always that of distress, but Jonah's literally in the water, drowning beneath his own sins. He's encompassed by this great fish, and I don't know the details of how it works. But in the midst of his crisis, Jonah is brought to the end of his resources. He has nothing. And he has to be stripped bare of everything to come to the realization of the greatness of God's mercy. And fortunately, God isn't as fickle as we are. That the God who had set Jonah apart, who he was a son of God's faithfulness, that God was faithful to hear Jonah's cry when he bottomed out. 
But that's where God has to take us. It's something that we frequently resist. That we not reach that moment where we feel absolutely desperate and that we don't have anything else to rely on. Where we have nothing else to commend ourselves. But this is where Jonah was. Listen to what he says in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. He was impoverished. He had nothing. He was at the end of his life. Flannery O'Connor has a wonderful short story titled, You Can't Get Any Poorer Than Dead. And this is where Jonah is. He's at the end. And so he has no one else to look to. And that's where God takes us. Because it's only from that position that we begin to appreciate grace. And if we need to get over entitlements with God's grace, where we think it's something that God owes us, and we think it's something that we can withhold from others, God will break us. It's how the logic of the Gospel works. Ten years ago, my father-in-law invited me to go on a trip with uh, uh, my other brothers-in-law. And we were going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It was a great uh, opportunity to do so. It was something I'd always dreamed about. And we took um, the long journey up. It was the 60-mile the version that comes up from the southwest. And they actually call it the fat man's hike. Because over 95% of people are successful when they take the long route. There's the Coca-Cola route, which is the rocket ride up. And only 50% of people are successful. But you don't have to be a, a highly trained athlete or anything to do Mount Kilimanjaro. It's not hardcore mountaineering. And so we take the long scenic route up. It was great uh, seeing the African wilderness, just all the, all the different topography. It's, it's fascinating. On day three, we had actually made it all the way to 15,000 feet. We're only 3,000 feet away from the summit at this point, but we're on an eight-day journey. And it was lunchtime. We had climbed an incredible amount. Everyone had altitude headaches, wasn't feeling good, but you could see a path that went straight to the top. And then our guide said, well, we're going this way. And I thought about where he pointed, and I looked where he pointed, and it was down. And it wasn't just a little down. It was way down. And he said, no, we're actually going five hours down. We're going back to 10,000 feet tonight. And on the way down, we were asking him, why are we doing this when, <laughs> when this misery could have been over? <laughs> you know, um, we, we could have ended this by going up that trail. And then he explained to us the way that altitude works in the human body. And he said, the way up, if you want to climb high, then you have to sleep low. So the way up is the way down. That's the way it works. And so you want to climb high in the day and then you want to sleep low and that that affects your body's chemistry and that you're able to tolerate the upper atmosphere, that you're able to breathe a thinner oxygen. And friends, it's the same principle that's true for the Christian life is that we have to hit bottom, that the way up, that the way in inside of the Christian faith is we have to go low, that we have to bottom out. And then when we are without resources and when everything is stripped free from us, that's when we can appreciate and know the grace of God and all that He's done for us in Jesus. But that's the first thing that has to happen. We hit bottom. The second is we have to confess our one hope. You notice where Jonah goes in his prayer. 
He expresses his distress. He acknowledges his rebellion against the Lord. And then in verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. And then his important conclusion. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is where Jonah acknowledges his great debt, that he has bottomed out, that he has no resources, but now he confesses the one hope that can meet him in that place, that salvation belongs to God. And that those who trust in idols, and it says vain idols or empty things, the word could be translated vapor, those who trust in things that are not real, they forsake the hope of steadfast love. And Jonah says, now with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. And this is the whole series of events that it took for Jonah to understand that salvation belongs to God. And you see, it's because we who are cultivated inside of the church and very familiar with the teachings of Scripture and the grace of God, we can be like Jonah. Son of His faithfulness. Set apart by God. We've been around the teachings of the Gospel. We know it. And yet, we don't know it. And God has to take us to the end in order to convince us to believe that salvation truly belongs to Him. And so Jonah confesses his one hope as he hits bottom. But then we find a third motion that happens to Jonah. When he bottoms out and confesses his hope, we find in chapter 3 that there then is a change. In verse 3 it said, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And this is the third thing that must happen. Is that we must rise to new obedience. You see, Jonah understood this in all of his orthodoxy. He had already said it in his prayer. He said, but I with voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Jonah recognized that receiving the grace of God, that there was a response of gratitude. There was a consecration of the self to God. It's not that Jonah would be perfect in any way, but he would give himself over to God's purposes. However imperfect that is. God makes it clear that He still sees Jonah's heart because when it says the great fish vomited him up on the land, it was with some disgust and humor that were given that word. Because we learn in chapter 4 that Jonah is still far from perfect. God still has much work to do with him. But God clearly also does forgive him and He redeems him. And Jonah, in the best way that he can, in his stumbling obedience, does rise to some new purpose. And now Jonah is obeying the voice of the Lord. He is hearing God, and he is deciding to get in line with it. Just as God spoke and the great wind arose, and just as God spoke and appointed the great fish, and just as God appointed the plant to grow, now Jonah is with the grain of creation, and he's listening to his Creator and his Redeemer, and he is in concert with him. 
And so he goes to Nineveh. And friends, this is the shape our lives must take. That having received the grace of God, knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord, we rise to a new purpose. We no longer live to ourselves and we're not stuck in the selfish morass that Jonah finds himself in as he descends into the heart of the sea. As he goes to a great technologically advanced city to escape the presence of the Lord, lost in his own self-pity and anger, that God saves you from that. And He calls you to something so much greater. To His purposes to redeem the world. Light to the nations. Light to those around us. Vessels of grace and mercy delivering the balm of the Gospel to those in need. And so Jonah goes. He preaches the Gospel. Or some version. His sermon is still rather pathetic to me. And then in a way, perhaps surprising to everyone, Nineveh responds. It gets all the way to the king and he commands everyone to respond. The surprising grace of God at work. People sometimes say, well, this is not possible. It happened to the Roman Empire. The one that they mocked and killed became its king and lord, the official religion of the state. Why can't it happen here? God works in a marvelous way through Jonah as he rises to new obedience. But friends, the outcome and the fruit is not the purpose of the obedience. The obedience is owed to God because He's our gracious Master. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Paul captures it quite well in Romans 12. He says, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. That that is the consecration that is to take place. After Paul wraps up his monumental celebration of God's grace at the close of Romans 11, singing a doxology, he then writes those words, that we offer our bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice. And Jonah, in his stumbling way, does so. And we, with all of our flaws and imperfections, are to do so. To offer ourselves to God. Because the church is the Son of God's faithfulness. We are those set apart by Him to be a light to the nations. And yet we still have a great amount of evil that pervades our own hearts. It sullies our motives. It makes us not care for others in the same way that God does. God looked at Nineveh and saw something that Jonah didn't. And God wants us to see what He sees. And that's the transformation that the Gospel can work in us. But God will be ruthless. He won't kill you. But He'll take you to the end in order to break you. That you confess that He is your one hope and that you then rise to a new purpose. Let Him have His way. Offer yourself to Him. This is what God is seeking to do in our world.